podcast is made possible by the generosity of listeners like you. Kindly consider a contribution through Patreon or PayPal. Links are in the details box to this episode. Patreon is a monthly subscription and you can cancel anytime. And PayPal is a one-time donation. Any amount is appreciated. I'm Rania Shatah and this is the Beirut Banyan. Jasmine El-Gaman, Senior Fellow at the Atlantic Council. This is something that's happening really on a massive global scale. When, if we're talking about coronavirus, it has touched people from the top echelons of society to the bottom. It doesn't discriminate. It doesn't, you know, uh, only touch the poor countries or rich countries. It's, it's really going everywhere. So in that sense, it doesn't feel unique. But what does feel unique about it from a Middle Eastern context is that it's just something that, you know, just kind of is, I feel, is aggravating and highlighting mm. things that we as, you know, whether as the societies themselves in those countries or uh, in the West, we're kind of trying to sweep under the rug and not pay much attention to, you know. So right. Right. all of these, like if you look at the ways, for example, that you know, Iran has dealt with this, Iraq, Egypt, even Lebanon, you know, Syria, you know, these systematic weaknesses mm. that have been a part of that society for so long are now being aggravated by, yes. by this virus. And in terms of how those countries are dealing with it, you know, in a country like Lebanon, where you have this completely parallel governance system, you know, between yes. Hezbollah, a state within a state, you know, what does that do? to a country trying to contain the crisis. Um, same for Iraq, um, same for Iran being just a completely authoritarian regime or Egypt or any of the other Arab countries, you know, what does that do? Um, and, and you know, are those types of governance systems sustainable for the kinds of challenges that we're going to be facing moving forward? Right, but let me ask you about the, at least the recent political demands that we saw on the streets, these chants for change, at times outright regime change. In particular in Lebanon, beginning October 17, going through until just a few weeks ago. Do you sense that the coronavirus pandemic may ultimately end the political aspirations that we saw the past few months? Or in a, in a sense, is it just a pause in that momentum that eventually these are demands that will have to be dealt with in one form or another? I, look, I definitely, um, and of course I have to caveat this by saying I'm not Lebanese, you know, but I lived there for a year and a half before I before I left and, and of course continue to stay in very close touch with friends there. And I, I would definitely say that this is not something, you know, the, the, the aspirations that were so vocalized um, mm. by people in Lebanon of every age, every faith, every sect, every city in the country is not something that just goes away because people are scared of a pandemic. Right. And I think if there's anything that we've learned um, from the Middle East in the last, you know, there was like sort of the first, what we called the Arab Spring, you know, the revolutions that toppled Hosni Mubarak and, and you know, protest revolutions in Tunisia and, and Libya and other, and other countries. Um, 
And then fast forward several years later, and then you have another round of protests. And maybe they weren't about the same thing exactly, but they were they were all kind of connected in the sense that you had people out in the streets demanding dignity. And yes. it really all boils down to dignity, right? It's someone who wants to be able to go home at the end of the day and look his kids in the eye and look his wife in the eye or a wife to look at, you know, her her husband or her parents or, or whatever. Um, to have people be able to come home at the end of the day holding their head up high and saying, we are living a dignified life. That demand doesn't go away. It doesn't go away because of oppression, because of repression by governments. It doesn't go away by, because of foreign intervention or the lack thereof. And it mm. certainly won't go away because of a pandemic, as horrible as it might be. And as much as it sort of stops life for a while, yes. those kinds of demands just don't go away. So what I'm getting from you is in a way, even if the numbers are not there for a while, whether the protests on the street have, maybe the protesters have gone home, that the fact is because their demands have been unfulfilled, it's just a matter of time until they seek change once again. That this is just a hiatus from what we saw happening. Yeah, 100%. I mean, if anything, some of the demands are going to get even more urgent. Right. I mean, right. you know, I mean, I have. So I'll tell you just a, a very quick story just to, to illustrate, you know, what I'm talking about. So when I used to live in Lebanon, I had um, this driver that I used to hire for most of my daily uh, outings, routines. I always made sure that if I had any friends coming into the country, that they would call him, that he was going to be their driver. Really, really good guy really hardworking, yeah. but just kind of your typical struggling guy. You know, mm -hmm. he had a wife and three kids. His daughter has had heart problems, seizures, um, just kind of one bout of bad luck after the other. Mm. And n just always running around to make ends meet and, and, and really just working hard, like, like waking up and working hard every day, doing everything right. Yeah. And, you know, when the first when the protest started last year, he couldn't drive because I mean, he's a driver. Like the roads were closed. There were road closures, tires burning. Yeah. No tourists. And so he was in a really bad spot. So he reached out to me, which must have been very difficult for him just from a pride point of view. Were you, asked me you, were in, you were not in Lebanon at the time? You no, were... I had moved away by that right. point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. he basically, but at that point, he had fallen behind on his rent and, his, yeah. and, and the rent for his car as well, which if he doesn't have a car, then he can't sure. drive, then he can't bring home an income. Yeah. Um, and uh, so I ended up doing a fundraiser for him on Twitter and and Facebook and I was just really it was so heartwarming to see how generous complete strangers were and we ended up raising three thousand dollars for him oh wow which, yeah which covered his rent for his car and his house that he owed to other people right and he was just over he was blown away I mean he was like I can't believe random strangers were donating five dollars uh, up to $400 for someone yeah. that they've never met. Anyway, it's like a, just a little side story about the beauty of the human spirit, but he, you know, he, he got back to kind of zero balance. Mm. 
Yes. And then he got hit by one crisis after the other. Then the banks right. weren't releasing funds. Then he couldn't do this. Then he couldn't do that. And now with coronavirus again. And so, you know, he, when this is all over, he is going to be someone who needs help from his government. Yeah. He's going to need support from his government to get his life back in order. He has an expectation now that his government is going to come to his aid Right. In his time of deepest need. And if you multiply that by all of, you know, most of Lebanese society, they're going to come back out of this and look at their government and say, okay, how are you going to help us deal with this? But is there any risk there in terms of the, for what you're saying, which is a, a return to normalcy to a degree, at least economic, economic dignity. So you have some money to rely on and there's some level of security. Is there any hesitation that that may ultimately prevent people from pushing the envelope again and trying to seek political change? In other words, that a comfort zone may return where it's a familiar beast, something we've dealt with for a long time. The old order does offer just enough to get by. Maybe it's not the right time to risk change. You know, so that's a really interesting question, and it really depends, I think, on Lebanese society itself, because, you know, for example, when I, I remember, because um, I was there for the first few days of the of the protest, and then I was kind of monitoring through friends from afar, mm-hmm. and you could definitely see, after the first couple of months, maybe three months, I started seeing a, a sort of... Uh, separation, a sort of tension between the younger generation, Mm -hmm. the very Mm -hmm. idealistic generation, the ones who, you know, quite frankly, are still living with their parents, you know, and maybe don't have to worry about bringing home, you know, bread for their family. So they were pushing the envelope. They're, no, we're not going home. We're not going home until this is over. And then you started to see People like Ali, the driver, who was like, mm. all right, listen, I, I'm with you and everything, but I can't drive because you're blocking the roads and I need to feed my family. Right. You know, why don't we just accept whatever the government has to offer and like, let's call it a day. Right. And so I think that we're going to start to see that tension within society where you have kind of the younger generation, the older yeah. generation, the people who have not so much to lose versus the people who have the lots to lose. Right. And, you know. Lebanon, for example, just kind of, you know, Egypt, where my parents are from, they're very different countries, Lebanon and Egypt. And, and um, you know, but we, we saw the same thing in Egypt as well, where today, today, although this is changing a bit too, but generally speaking, you had this moment, you know, recently, in the last couple of years, I would say, mm. where people are kind of like, look, we don't want, they're looking around the region and they're seeing Syria in, in just complete tatters, Iraq in complete despair, um, you know, Libya. And, and they're just looking around and they're saying like, gosh, we don't, we don't want that. Right. And, starting, and starting to make those calculations in their heads, you know, do we just kind of keep our heads down and just take what we can? Or do we risk it all and risk being like those countries? Um, and right. it's definitely it's definitely a, a fear that is being capitalized on by some leaders in the region. Mm-hmm. Oh, look, you don't want to be like the Syrians, do you? And, and people are like, well, actually, we really don't. I mean, we don't want to, you know. 
So, you know, where that goes and where that balance kind of ends up shaking out at the end of the day, I think what the coronavirus crisis is showing us is that at the same time that it's illuminating all of these weaknesses in certain countries, Mm -hmm. like in Lebanon, can you really have a sustainable system where there's a state within a state, you know, uh, in Syria, can you really have a sustainable system where a non-state actor is governing large swaths of territory in the north of Syria, for example, you know, um, so you have all these questions that are coming, but the other side of that is it's also potentially making authoritarianism attractive in a way compared to that. So you have, you know, you're looking at countries like the Gulf countries who have tested more citizens than any other country in the region. Um, You know, they're, they're, they're implementing measures um, that are maybe harder to implement in other countries. And so you might have people starting to think, and this is a global conversation now, but it's definitely happening in the region, in the region as well, where you're like, look, at the end of the day, the world is awful. We have all these problems. Do we really want to risk it for democracy or do we just want, is authoritarianism the way to go? We swallow our pride a little bit and and we move on hints of this even in the eu with hungary becoming a for all exactly a, a exactly. dictatorship i mean this is not um yeah it doesn't speak well for for right. democratic aspirations at the moment right and i was just actually talking about this funny enough with a lebanese friend yesterday where we were saying you know what do you think the world is going to look like after this are we just going to accept you know so so let's say between now and then you know, our lives are going to have to be a little bit more controlled by government. Government's mm-hmm. going to have to know a little bit more about us than we mm-hmm. might be comfortable with, you yeah. know, and it's and, and, and in different countries, of course, they're going to take it to different lengths. Like you just mentioned, sure. Hungary. Um, are we going to become complacent and accept that as the new normal? Mm-hmm. Are, by the time that becomes the new normal, are we even going to have the chance to reverse it, even if we wanted to? Right. You know, um, are we going to want to reverse it? And all of these, I mean, I think it's too early to tell, but if people aren't thinking about these questions, they definitely should be right now because the last thing we want is to wake up, especially in a region like the Middle East where we already have had problems with authoritarianism and, and yes. like the lack of control over our own lives. Right. You really want, you need, we need to be asking ourselves these questions and kind of preparing ourselves for, yeah. you know, quote unquote, the day after. Yeah. And I, you know, I, it's a, it's an odd comparison, except that these are the only two examples that are sort of uh, spoken of in the Middle East that you look back a hundred years ago, geopolitical situation was a mess in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. Spanish flu, hundreds of thousands, millions of people died. And in the middle of that, you have the Ottoman Empire collapsing, you have World War One. And suddenly the Middle East finds itself in a very different situation. And I know that this is not exactly what is happening today, but I just wondered that it's because social distancing is such a strong component in how to solve this coronavirus. It's just hard to see the same drive by the youth to accelerate the necessary changes that all of us have been speaking of for, for decades now. And that I just, I worry that if there's no, if that momentum stutters, or let's say the pause is too long, that it may be years and years from now before we see that sort of rush 
to alleviate the the pain and and the what you said earlier the dignity wanting to of claim. course yeah of course and it's just one of those things that you know i mean what else do you do i mean the fact is that you know some of some of these governments are going to use this crisis to their advantage yes you know like like they can institute lockdowns for example and you yeah. know by virtue of being locked down you can't go out and protest and who knows how sure. long that will take um, let, let alone even organize. I mean, even meet beyond. Let alone exactly. Let alone even meet. I mean, you know, different countries have different. Um, I mean, even something like travel. Like we don't, you know, you don't really think about the right now. Everybody's kind of frustrated. Like we can't travel. We can't go to be reunited with our loved ones. We can't go visit family. You know, we can't do right. this and that. But. You know, there's also a second and third order effect, second and third order effects of that, which is you're also not having any international conferences where people are getting to meet and exchange ideas and get moral support and bring that back to their countries and move it forward. You're not having training sessions. You're not having workshops. I mean, all of that has stopped and that's going to have a hugely detrimental effect that I nobody's, you know, mentioned that I haven't heard anybody mention that before. Yeah. I only just actually thought of it now as we were talking. Um, yeah. It's. I had it's a, the, an economic advisor reached out to me. I thought he wanted to be interviewed. Turns out he wanted to know he wanted the know-how of how to set up a podcast, because their international conference is canceled, and they wanted exactly. to put it online. And I felt so it's it's really speaks to the moment that you, they want to find a way to do this, but the the limitations are so severe that. Technology is the substitute, but technology is not enough just to push through regime change. It really requires human momentum on the street or at least some level of organization that's physical. Of and course. Yeah. You remember, I don't, you know, so this was a long time ago now, but in the, the, the Egyptian revolution of 2011, yes. when um, the Egyptian government at the time, if you'll remember, there was a very critical moment. And of course, we'll never know exactly how much this factored into everything and, mm-hmm. and what would have happened if they hadn't done this. But there were they shut down the Internet. Yes. For, right. Do you remember that? Of course, but, yes. w- but you know what that did? That forced people out into the streets to communicate. And that 100%. created that human yeah. momentum that you're right. talking about. That, yes. You know, so, of course, when you look back here. You kind of think like, wow, like if they hadn't cut off the internet, would this have happened? It's all these little yes. tiny moments that you think back on and you think, wow. So, you know, this was a life changing event and, and it had so many ripple effects. But you're right. There has to be there. has there. You know, everything happens now. I mean, technology is such a huge part of our lives now. And we do use it in a way that we've never used. It's an integral part of our lives. I mean, where would we be right now when during, you know, in isolation, if we couldn't zoom and Skype and WhatsApp and all of that stuff, but, um, but, but you're right, it's not enough. And, but, but when, when are we able to get back onto the streets and congregate? When are we able to go have, you know, sessions where we could talk about our aspirations and how best to go about them? When are we able to go out into the street and demand better things of our governments? Yeah, I mean, we don't know. It's it's a, it's a very uh, it's an unexpected pause in all the developments we've been seeing for the last months, even even years. It's just sort of a a moment of reckoning, and I guess I mean at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. It's too soon to predict how these things play out. Mm-hmm. But but I'll tell you. you- 
Sorry, go, go ahead. Uh, well, no, I was just, uh, it's clear at the end of the day, though, that if these aspirations are not fulfilled, they will be called on once again. That won't just simply fade away. A hundred percent. So that's actually exactly what I was about to say. Mm -hmm. I was I was going to say that I agree with you. And, and, and basically to say that, you know, for governments in the region that have been struggling with how to, um, you know, address their their people's demands. Yes. Some governments have decided they're not going to address the demands. We're just going to clamp down and this is the way things are going to be. Yeah. And you just kind of hope that that you clamp down enough that no one can do anything. And we can also, I mean, and of course, those governments are doing so with the support, with the kind of tacit, you know, so if not support, then at least feigned ignorance uh, of, of the West as well. And we can talk about that, you know, yes. later, like what part, yeah. what, how differently the West is reacting to the region sure. now and what role that's played in everything that we're talking about. But, um, you know, for governments that have not decided on to go like the full authoritarian route. So, for example, the Lebanese government that does seem to be making attempts at like, OK, we know that we have to find a way to address some of these issues. They have basically been granted a sort of a, of, of like a little pause, a little respite to yes. figure stuff out. You yes. know, yes. And if, you know, if I were advising those governments, I would say, look, you have basically gotten an extension on your grad school paper that was due two weeks ago. And instead of just procrastinating <laughs> even further, write it, write, write that paper, you know, use the time to write the paper so that yeah. when this is all over, you can just hand it in. Are you speaking um, from personal experience here? That this 100%, is hundred percent. I'm the worst. I'm the worst. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, you really want to tell these governments to, 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 you know, if there's anything that the last 10, 15 years have taught us, it's this people's aspirations are not going to go away. People will not live a life where they feel undig. There's a word in Arabic, mazlul. You know, when you're mazlul, when you're up, when you're. I don't know what the English word actually is. That it's like when you just feel, you know, sort of humiliated. Yeah. You know, and, yeah, and humiliated. Right I think yeah. is the closest word. Yeah. Um, you know, people people don't take well to living under. You know, to living a life of, of humiliation for a long time, right. and and you know these governments now have an opportunity to take a step back and figure out how they're going to fix this. Yes. And I hope that they do that. You know, you're the perfect person, and this is actually the perfect segue, which I always enjoy. You've sort of made it magically happen. <laughs> you're both, I'll say this carefully here, you're young enough so that you're not too jaded from the region. And right. you're also old enough to have seen at least shades of attempts at reform and change. And uh, you have personally been part of the story to a degree, at least when it comes to American involvement in the region. And I'm going to ask you just to take me back a bit to the years leading up to the Iraq invasion in 2003 and the aftermath of that invasion, the U.S. occupation and the whole story that we're familiar with. American interest when it comes to the day-to-day -day affairs of the average person living in that part of the world. In my eyes, seems to be far less that there's a reluctance and perhaps a, uh, a, a real disinterest in the outcome of these protest movements 
today. Today, yes. Today, go back in time 15 years ago, 16 years ago, that it seemed like that's the whole discussion was on the aspirations of the average person. Maybe for reasons that we don't need to get into and that endless debate of why the invasion happened. But that aside, the outcome of these protest movements, and I, I hope I say this right, would have been a priority for American policymakers and the U.S. government in, in those years, 15 years ago. And today it's hard to find it. It's really hard to see a, 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 a curiosity and the genuine desire for democracy and, and dignity and economic reform, political reform, all that. And I, I know there's a lot that happened in between. I know it's a completely different administration today than let alone forget the Bush years, then the Obama years too. This administration stands out. And I know that Americans in the Middle East today are a different, it's a different story Mm-hmm. And it's one of obviously many consequences along the way. But is there, in, in your in your opinion, is there room today for American involvement, at least when it comes to the aspirations of protesters? Is there anything that the Americans can do today that they're not doing? And is there any sort of lessons learned from the last 15 years of what we've seen happen in the Middle East? And I'm, I hope I'm saying this right, reluctance, American reluctance. Mm-hmm. Wow. I feel like I could, I mean, gosh, I feel like I could talk about that for hours and hours, um, but I know we don't have that much time. Um, I guess I'll just say a couple of things. So I think, so my, my experience with sort of U.S. involvement in the region mm-hmm. starts in 2003, mm-hmm. in early 2003, very inadvertently when I kind of as a very young woman, I, you know, uh, volunteer to be a translator uh, with U.S. troops going into Iraq. Um, and, you know, I was 21 and I didn't really, I don't think I really understood full well what I was signing up for. But the reason I did was because, you know, I just felt like I had an obligation as someone who was bicultural and bilingual right. to do my part Um to enhance and, 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 and sort of allow for proper communication between the two sides. Because yes. I always, I, I, you know, I mean, you know this too, Ronnie, like, you know, when you grow up sort of in between different cultures, you, you really, really start placing a lot of importance on communication. You know, you know that communication is everything. The wrong words, the wrong look, the, the you know, can lead to misunderstandings. And if you can't communicate that properly, um, bad things happen, can happen. So that's, so that's why I went. But the reason I bring that up is because, you know, I got to see really firsthand and very closely the, what U.S. involvement in the Middle East looked like mm-hmm. and what the dynamic was between sort of Americans and Iraqis at the time. Mm-hmm. Of course, later on, I started working at the Pentagon and I, I was there for eight years. And so I participated in U.S. foreign policy towards the region from a very much higher level, you know, a policy perspective, whereas in Iraq, I was on the ground. Mm -hmm. And it was it was sort of amazing and kind of sad to see the. I don't want to say evolution, because I think it was it was just a devolving Mm, um, trajectory. um, And when it came to that relationship and yeah 
And there are a couple of reasons for that, I think, right? Like one reason is, um, and I think this had a large part to do with it, which is you simply had, you know, three U.S. presidents consecutively who had utterly different visions for the region. Utterly. I mean, you, you know, you had George W. Bush was all about, he genuinely, I think his administration genuinely did believe um, at a certain level that they wanted to empower the people of the region and, and sow democracy and, and, you know, all this, but they didn't really, I don't think, understand the full implications of that, you know, Mm -hmm. and I think you'll remember was it 2005 when Hamas won elections, you know, sort of free and fair? Was it 2005, I think? Either five or or maybe 2006. It's around then. Yeah. Oh, right, but but the U.S. Yeah. didn't acknowledge the results right. of those elections. So yes. there was just sort of that kind of fumbling around with yeah. what we thought we wanted for the region yes. and what that would have looked like in real life and how unprepared we were to accept what that would have looked like in real right. life. Right. Then, then you had President Obama come in who really just wanted to reset he just wanted to do away with all of the Bush era policies and start from scratch. And he initially came in with a very, I think, human view of the region. I think partly because he grew up in Indonesia. He was familiar with Muslim culture. Obviously not that the whole Middle East is Muslim, but he was a little bit more understanding mm. of that. And I think more humanizing in the way that he saw the region. Unfortunately, I think that he was dealt, he kind of, had to deal with, you know, the Arab Spring and Libya and Syria and getting re-involved in Iraq when he really didn't want to and ISIS. And he was just kind of, and I think, um, and I, you know, I, I, I sort of speak from firsthand knowledge here, um, or at least from being in, in government and kind of seeing this, that there was a moment, and I can't pinpoint that moment, but there was there was a time um, when I think President Obama kind of, you know, said, look, you can't change this region. Mm-hmm. You can't you can't do anything. You know, these people are kind of good. They're going to do whatever they're going to do. And and it was, you know, it was I, I struggled with it because I could see why he would think that. But I also found it deeply frustrating and disappointing mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That we started to lose our humanity and our, our sort of humanization of of the people of the Middle East. You know, we started really looking at. You were at, in the Pentagon then. You sort of this is yeah. from from. I mean, okay, I'm going to just interrupt for a moment. This is a fairly short period of time that passes. I mean, it's just this is I'm guessing seven or eight years after. Eight years. Eight years. So it's really the attention span is quite short. When it comes but to kind of well, uh, but, but I'll tell you why it's quite short, and I, and this is like what I learned at the Pentagon too. So I only worked under President Obama, so I worked for the eight mm-hmm. years under his, you know, roughly under his um, administration. And uh, you know, one thing that I learned, and it was also kind of simultaneously enlightening and disappointing at the same time. So I worked on you know crisis portfolios, Lebanon, Syria, you know. Um, I did, you know, some on Egypt, Jordan, and so on, ISIS, uh, and... I thought you were going to say Iceland. I'm like... (laughs) Wait, what did that have to do with it? Um, No, and then you you just sort of, okay, so you're like, when you're working on those those crisis portfolios, and, you know, for me, as well as, like, my many colleagues who worked on Syria for years, Mm. it's just something that was 
deeply scarring and something that we will never be able to forget because you're so invested and you're so in your mind, you want to write a memo to the U.S. president and say, sir, you ha- we have to get involved in Syria. We have to do something. Meanwhile, though, the president has a million mem- memos on his desk that are talking about ch- the rise of China and Russia, you know, a resurgent Russia and climate change. And, you know, and so, you know, you're the U.S. president and you're trying to prioritize And maybe you won't do something in Syria because you think that you have to do something about Russia and China and so on. And so if anything, I just it helped me understand sort of the decision making capability or the the decision making process of a U.S. president. Um, But I also, you know, I I also think that it wasn't just that. I think it was that it was like the vast array of challenges that you know, the Mm -hmm. Obama administration had to deal with combined with the fact that there was just extreme fatigue on the part of the U.S. in just dealing with the Middle East. It was sort of like, all right, well, we can't change anything, you know. So the Arab Spring started, the the, the Obama administration was totally caught off guard in Egypt and Libya and Tunisia and Syria and with Bahrain and with every country we had to figure out okay, what do we do? What's our position? Is there anything we can do to shape this? Should we even be doing anything to shape this? So there was a lot of kind of back and forth and there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of trial and error. You had people who are very, his cabinet was very mixed. You had the sort of humanitarian interventionists like Samantha Power. You had the sort of more hawkish people like Hillary Clinton. You had the Pentagon that was sort of always like, no, we're not going to suspend arms shipments to so-and-so regime because we need them on our side. So there was a lot of back and forth. When you went to the Obama, sorry, when when Trump got elected, you had for the second, so you had, you know, first you had Obama trying to overdo whatever, override whatever president, his predecessor did. Mm. Now you had another president who was trying to override what his predecessor did. So it was all about dismantling anything and everything that the the Obama administration has done Mm -hmm. with an even more tired American public of the Middle East, with an even more disinterested and non-empathetic person in the presidency. So President Trump doesn't care about the region. He, Mm -hmm. He really genuinely sees it, I think, in two ways. Uh, he's in two categories. You have like the cash cows, you have the countries that you can get money out of, like i.e. the Gulf, and you have the countries that are problems like Iran and Syria, and then you have everyone else who you don't really care about, they're boring. <laughs> uh, so that's, so, okay, I'm going to maybe unpack this a bit. There's two points I want to get at. From your own perspective, because you're part of the, in a way, you're able to see it from both sides, I think. The... Is it simply a matter of personality here that the leadership is not interested? And add to that that perhaps there isn't someone to talk to there in the Middle East. That there's no that these are per, these are aspirations and they're maybe well intentioned and they're calling on the things that resonate. But if there's no one to talk to per se, it's an it's an it's a hopeless cause. So in, in other words, I'm going to maybe give two examples. The Arab Spring, which is, I mean, if you look back on it, that's the closest the Middle East got to something familiar to the West. 
1989, the Berlin Wall falling, and then this sort of Velvet Revolution, Romania, Poland, all of that, this sort of this spring, this awakening, mm-hmm. it should resonate through and through. And you have an administration that is largely reluctant. Reluctant, and part of that is simply a president who is elected to make sure that there's no further involvement in that part of the world. So that really comes down to, it's almost like a, a blending of personality and policy, and the two are not lining up when it comes to helping, reluctantly getting involved. You fast forward a decade later, this is even more so. This is genuine accountability. These are domestic uprisings. Very little geopolitical thought to it. When geopolitics gets in, it gets in for the usual reasons. But not when it comes mm-hmm. to protesters. They're not waving flags. They're not calling on external powers to come to their rescue. In a way, this is really a really unique moment. It's domestic. And it's simple accountability. And there's no interest. And people are left. Just deal with it. on your. If you can do it. Good for you. If you can't, it doesn't matter to us. Us meaning the Americans. Right. And it well, adds- and even the Europeans too, Ronnie. I mean, the sure, Europeans sure. have been completely absent from, from all of this as well. Oh, and I, I actually, for better or worse, when I say Americans, I should ask, I mean, the, the, the players that could get involved. The big play, right. The UK, France, Germany. Yeah. The ones the US. That, that you usually expect to be on your side when you're calling on positive change at Exactly. And they're they're not there. And here you have really, this is a fluid moment, protesters without leadership, without names that are familiar. It's not like these are political parties that are sort of summoning the leadership. On on the contrary, protesters, fluid without leadership, and a president in the White House who seems, as you said, to be really just, this is just nothing to do with us for the for but at least yeah right so also okay so if we if we're just if we're talking about lebanon specifically right now something that you mentioned is really important which was that the lebanese um protests that erupted last year late last year it's a leaderless movement mm-hmm. and that's something that my lebanese friends have been extremely proud of you know mm-hmm. it's the it's a people's movement yes it's decentralized it's democratic it's widespread you know it's it's i was there i mean i was i would i was walking around and just i had goosebumps you know i was walking yeah. around and you know people were singing and the you for the first time all i saw around me was the lebanese flag no party flags Absolutely. i mean so it was it's it's really beautiful but if you look at that i also I mean, you're right. I do see things from different perspectives or from both sides, because on one hand, I see it as, you know, an Egyptian American, as someone who's lived in the region, who is very, you know, intimately familiar with the region and and its people, while at the same time having spent all this time, you know, as a U.S. policymaker, basically, or an advisor and to, to, to senior policymakers. And so, you know, my my that, you know, my Jasmine the the person you know says this is such a no brainer i mean these people are literally protesting for every single value that the west holds near and dear and I mean, that is always telling you can't get closer i mean yeah. so so you know and that's not just in lebanon so let's take it to iraq sure. i mean the iraqi yeah. protesters how brave Absolutely. those young iraqis were and how 
they were literally, you know, even more so, you know, in Lebanon, there, there were incidents of tear gassing and things like that. In, in Iraq, you know, these, these kids were going out into the street not knowing whether they were going to come back home. Absolutely. And they were doing that because they believed in things that the U.S. has stood for or at least proclaimed to stand for yeah. for, 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 for forever. And, and, the, you know, and, and I'm talking about European countries as well. And so on one hand, you kind of see that and it's only then when you realize the extent to which the region has been dehumanized that people and policymakers in the West, I think there are two kinds. One, one I understand more than the other. The mm -hmm. one that I understand more is, well, that's, what do we do? What do we do? We don't want to get involved. We don't want to do regime change anymore. We know we it has never worked out for us in the past. You know, we mm. always do it wrong. We don't understand these contexts. We always pick the wrong side, mm. you know, da, 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 da. And in, in the case of Lebanon, for example, it's like, well, who's the leader? Who do we work with? Who do we support? You know, what, what who's going to who's going to run the country the day after? I mean, it's all all all, you know, fine and dandy. They're playing amazing patriotic songs. But how do right. they govern? And yeah. those are actually real questions and they're valid questions. So for people who are protesting in the Middle East, what I would, what I, if I were advising them, I would say you need to chart a very clear path mm. and mm. a very clear agenda and roadmap mm. for how you intend to achieve what you're trying to achieve mm. and be very explicit about whether you want support from outside or not, because some don't, some countries don't, some will say, leave us alone. Yeah. Yeah. Just leave us alone. Let us do, you know, stay out of it. Yeah. So that's so that's the one valid sort of concern that I have. It's like, mm -hmm. okay, if you're a U.S. policymaker, a, a British policymaker, and if you don't understand what comes the day after, you're not going to do anything one way or the other. It's too risky. So you just kind of let them do what you know, whatever they're doing. Right. The other type of policymaker I think out there is the part that sort of shakes their head. You know, it's it's Donald Trump calling Syria the land of sand and blood or whatever you know it's the type of policymaker that really looks at the region from a very dehumanizing perspective mm. does not actually see them as having the same aspirations or values that they do kind of yeah. seeing them yeah. as like lesser than these people have always fought each other you know i think one of obama's advisors said it called it ancient hatreds which is just such a ridiculous thing to say of course um and the thing that the thing that as again, and you'll understand this and your listeners who are bicultural will understand this as someone who kind of straddles both worlds. You fi I find it really heartbreaking that we're not able to bridge that communication gap between the two, because you can see perfectly clearly how similar the two are, the same, they're fighting for the same values, even if it's not the same culture or religion. Absolutely. We're talking about basic values of human rights, dignity, respect, oh. you know, family. I mean, these are basic common human values. And Absolutely. so the fact that I think Western policymakers, or at least some of them, or even just the West in general, it's always kind of boggled my mind how little for example, the U.S. public in general has cared about Syria, you know, the refugee crisis and the chemical weapons attacks. And yeah. 
I always wonder if it had been another country that was, you know, white or Christian or, you know, whatever, would it have been different? Um, And I don't want to come to any conclusions, but it's hard not to feel that way. It's hard Mm. not to feel that through, you know, you know, a couple of decades of conflict and war and loss and trauma on both sides. Mm. Mm. um, It's hard not to just come to the conclusion that, you know, each side wants nothing to do with the other now. But I do believe that it's to the detriment of both of them. Is there anything in that mix? Because I think you eloquently just shaped the, the, the sincere concern of some officials that don't have answers that, are, that maybe should be available. And I think what you said about not knowing who to talk to and whether or not they want us to talk anyway is a, is a real question. And without that answer, it's sort of a reckless journey to try to sort of get involved and maybe end up with a worse situation. But is there something about the fluidity, which is, it seems to be necessary, at least among those countries, when it comes to trying to achieve some form of regime change, or forget change, just reform, that the fluidity is a byproduct of violence, a byproduct as well of assassinations and there's i think many reasons why protesters have avoided sort of nominating one person mm-hmm. and I think that is part of it as well that they just don't want to get targeted so that's a component that seems to be required mm-hmm. for form there and then at the same time that prevents organization organization in terms of having a structure to communicate with and at least in the case of lebanon in 2005 which is a sort of an interesting uh, evolution for the last 15 years, that these were the political parties that were, in a way, you could have the U.S. speak to the leadership of several political parties in Lebanon, and that became sort of the channel of communication. Now you have protesters that are calling on those parties to get lost as well. So it's really a matter of who do you talk to. Is there a way to kind of bridge that? so that the Americans are at least in principle on the side of the protesters. And like you said, if you organize enough, or if you ever need us to be behind you in, in at least a symbolic way, we're there. Or is that also not in the mix today, at least, when it comes to the Trump administration? And in a way, what you said earlier is that you know this dismissal, blood and sand, doesn't mm-hmm. matter whether they look like us or not, lost cause. And this whole reference about they don't look white enough or they're not Christian. You know, I going to the Lebanese example, I mean, you can't get whiter and more Christian, at least when it comes to the Middle East. This is right, the- right. <laughs> I mean, if there's any, if there's any country that will elicit I mean, sympathy. Are there more Christians anywhere else in the Middle East? No. Can right. you get whiter? I don't think so. And also you have women, women front and center. I mean, right. it's a woman-led thing. Even that is sort of a, that's nah, not for us. So so I, I guess I just I think, think it, how much is, I'm trying to get sort of between that personality and policy and whether or not there's something that could stick given what we have today. You know, so it's, uh, it's a, it's, it's a difficult question to answer because there are just so many factors involved and there are so many moving parts. And I think, you know, maybe I'll just kind of, I mean, I mention a couple of parts just thinking out loud here, you know, 
They're the one, I think the, any, every U.S. government, every U.S. administration comes in with a strategy mm-hmm. for, the, for, mm-hmm. for every region in the world. Mm-hmm. Every U.S. Admin, I mean, they do this. I mean, you know this, like they do this during the campaigns. They have policy papers. You know, the candidates have policy papers. They have their platforms. And then once they get into office, they have their national security strategy. They have right. their Middle East policy. I mean, so every so in that in that sense, that's always been the area where the biggest changes could happen. So like, let's say, you know, for example, as we discussed, the Bush administration, you know, democracy promotion was way, way up there. The Obama administration, not so much. It was kind of more behind the scenes. The Trump administration, ISIS and Iran, that's it, like done. That's the only thing, you know, actually the three eyes, I would say, like Iran, ISIS and Israel, like those are the three priorities of the Trump administration when it comes to the Middle East. Right. And when you have a U.S. president coming in and setting their priorities, it's the one thing that I that I always used to kind of notice as a staffer at the Pentagon, for example. So we would have, you know, policy makers, foreign officials, you know, coming in from different countries. They would meet with my boss, the Secretary of Defense, and they would ask for things. I mean, of course, we were the Pentagon, so they would. It was very much a, we would like this, we would like that, you know. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it always struck me as, and you can apply this to protesters as well. If you're asking something of some, let's say of the U.S. as an example, well, I think it's really important to take stock of what the U.S. priorities are at that time. Right. Just so that you can see where you can, like, where is that box that you're working yeah. within, Yes, and yes, I yes. think that, you know what I mean? And that box ah. will look different for every president. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I personally don't see an era in the future where we're going to go back to huge U.S. involvement in the region. I don't think so. Right, right. Um, that era has passed, and it's passed yeah. because of so many different things. The economy, you know, the U.S. is struggling itself. There are other priorities, you know, there's... So if you are a protester in Lebanon, for example, or in any other country, or if you're a political party, or if you're a government, uh, a government, you know, Mm. leadership of the country, and you want something specific out of the U.S. or the West, however you want to put it, Mm. you have to be able to understand what your limitations are in terms of what you can ask for. And the reason I say that is not because I don't want protesters to get what they're after. I mean, of course, I believe in the values that they're fighting for, but I'm trying to be very pragmatic. You know, I mean, I it, my experience in government shaped me in mm. a way that I am much more pragmatic in my policy recommendations than I am as a human being in terms of what I want to see. Right. And there are certain things that are just never going to happen again when it comes to the U.S. and the Middle East. And so where do we go from there? Like, what's the reset? What's the new relationship? Is it is it you try to forge relationships between people? So, mm-hmm. like, as a Lebanese protester, do I try to bypass the national level government and try to talk straight to the American people through talk shows and podcasts and op-eds and cultural, you know, exchanges, and then hope that that trickles up somehow? Or do you try to just go straight up to the top and and ask for things? And 
it's right. those are things that those protesters across the region, if they want any support at all from the outside, those are questions that they should be asking themselves. Those are things that they need to be thinking through strategically. What is it that we want to achieve? Mm-hmm. How do we go about achieving it? What is in the realm of possible? And what is the best way to go about that? I want to pick your brain on this. The the You hinted at it earlier that the Pentagon, to a degree, to a degree, there's a consistency, despite the administration, mm-hmm. of of supporting the security apparatus, at least, in certain relationships, even if it may not be to the benefit of protesters on the ground. And that seems to be a continuous sort of trend within the last three administrations. You can correct me here if I'm, if I'm getting this wrong. But there are some things that do not change. And if they change, it's cosmetic more than instrumental. And that's when it comes to the security component. So I'll throw an example towards you. Uh, I don't get the feeling from the American side that there's a there's any sincere thought today of not supporting the Lebanese army. Mm-hmm. You may of not the, supporting. Not, in other words, you sometimes you feel like there, you hear whispers of sort of maybe second guessing or some thoughts to, against it, but by and large that relationship stays intact. Mm-hmm. And if it's delayed, it's delayed for a, a small brief period of time, and then the money gets there. That's just one example of protesters trying to seek reform and and regime change, quote unquote. But there's a sort of a continue there's a continue continuity in American policy, at least state to state. And you can sort of do examples other than Lebanon as well. Is there a continuity when it comes to supporting protesters? And what I'm what I'm really getting at is, does the State Department each administration shift to the degree that it's really a blank slate each time at how you look at a protest movement? Or is there also continuity, at least in the smallest sense, which is if you call on us, if you want us there for you, we will be there, but you need to be organized. So, so Well, I, remember, I yeah. mean, no, sorry, finish, uh, that finish is, your is, question. Is, is organization the, the missing component, that you have to take the risk against the odds, organize, and then... If you call on us, will whether it's Trump or Biden or Obama or Bush, will help you. It, uh, so it depends to a certain. I mean, so you know, the State Department and the Defense Department all operate under the president's policy and his strategy. Mm. So you can't have a president um, that you know doesn't want to get involved, for example, in Syria, and then have his Secretary of State. Mm. get involved in Syria somehow. Mm. Mm. So right. again, like the window, the operating space is very narrow. It's yes. narrowly, it narrowly fits under the the U.S. president, you know, and his, and, and his NSC, his National Security Council. The policy right. that comes out of the White House is the policy that, um, and those decisions can be hashed out. I mean, you can, that's what you have cabinet meetings for and you mm. have, mm. um, you know, principles committee meetings, for example, which is where all the principles, the heads of the the, the different departments meet, um, uh, where they will have those discussions. You know, where 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 you know the State Department could say, "Look, I know that you know we're not going to do X, Y, and Z in Syria, but I would like my team to meet with the opposition and provide them with this certain amount of assistance." 
Um, and there's, you know, it's it's a discussion. And then, of course, it all has to be approved by the White House. And then it happens. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it has a lot to do with personality. I mean, if you compare, for example, um, Secretary Kerry, you know, John Kerry yes. was Secretary of State. I mean, he was very involved. He was very empathetic. He was mm-hmm. very much on the side of you know, kind of people fighting for their dignity. And, and um, he was very much, you know, the peacemaker, the negotiator. And mm. so he was always pushing for that kind of stuff. And sometimes he won, sometimes he didn't, you right, know, right. In, when in these bureaucratic battles. Whereas, you know, the next Secretary of State was Rex Tillerson, who genuinely didn't give... <laughs> I mean, I don't want to use any... <laughs> Go ahead, <laughs> me, say no, it. I, <laughs> I won't... <laughs> Who did not care. No, you um, should have given like that friendly alternative. He didn't give a hoot. You know, a something. Hoot. Yeah, a hoot. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I haven't heard that term in a while. Who didn't give a hoot about any of that stuff um, at all. And, and just basically spent his entire tenure dismantling the actual State Department. Um, now you have a Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, who is kind of just very much on the same page as President Trump and well, you know, so again, I mean, you know, I always hate to say in, in podcasts or interviews, like, oh, it depends because it's such a vague thing. But I mean, I think the most tangible thing to come out of conversations like these or what I try to do is I try to give like, okay, like from my experience, here's what I think works. Here's what doesn't work. Here's why this is happening. And I think that, you know, in terms of why it's happening, we've talked about it. You know, there's just extreme fatigue on both sides, extreme yeah. trauma on both sides mm. um, and 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 a sense of dehumanization on both sides. And there is no great communicator. There's no, you know, person or, or, or organization or, you know, it's very much ad hoc. I mean, you have you know, brilliant writers out there that do their part in in building bridges, but there's no kind of decision at the very top by some of these countries to build bridges between East and West in that way, or the Middle East and and the U.S. in that way. Um, I mean, think of Obama's speech in Cairo, you know, like... When you, where when, where yeah, is that? You know, absolutely. where is that type of where is that type of rhetoric? I was struck by if you go back and you compare President Obama's 2009 Cairo speech, how personal and how empathetic that was, and you com- and you go to President Trump's speech in Saudi Arabia, <sighs> which I think was his first trip abroad as president. You can see, especially as someone who's really into kind of communication and the nuances of mm-hmm. words and things like that, the way that th- the difference between the two tones, you know, where one was, you know, was was talking to people as, you know, as an equal, let's build this relationship, let's start mm-hmm. fresh, let's start, regardless of what happened afterwards, but mm-hmm. at that moment in time, There was someone who was attempting to build bridges between the two cultures. And if you look at President Trump's speech, and again, really, this isn't political. I mean, I'm not, you know, we can joke about that stuff. But when I'm, as I analyze this, it's really not political at all. Um, But the way that President Trump was speaking in Saudi Arabia was very much in a sort of, they are the other. You know, I want you guys to deal with those terrorists that are in your land, that come from your faith. You know, it's just the nuances um, that I think even if people don't 
get them explicitly, it has a sort of subliminal effect um, that 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 uh, is is accentuated with, of course, you know, actions, not not just words. But so I think that, you know, we really do, you know, if we are going to move to a space moving forward where there's some kind of reset between the United States, the Middle East, although that sounds very general, but just to generalize, um, you have to you have to do a, you have to have a couple of things. You know, one thing is that you have to have a leader, um, leaders yeah. who, of, of these nations who will come out and set the tone for the relationship and set right. the tone for that. Yeah you know, that level of respect and humanity and equality and all of that stuff. And then on the, on, on, from, from a, from sort of more of a grassroots uh, perspective or point of view, as, as, you know, protesters in the region are trying to communicate with the West, with the U.S., really think about what you're trying to communicate, how you're communicating it, and, where is that space that where's that operating space that you have where you're not asking for something mm. so you know off the table that everything else that you ask for is going to be dismissed as well you know but at the same time still be able to kind of get a little bit of what you want it requires strategy on mm. the part of both parties and just because you know if you're a protest movement even if you don't have a leader you should still have a strategy yes. for how you're going to get to where you want and who plays what role in your right. journey. So it's almost like a um, it's almost like an instruction manual for the last stage of development. So right. you have a protest movement that does all the difficult work and gets to a point where they're able to do what you're in a way what you're suggesting, which is limited window can put yourself in there and then hope for the best but it's not something from built from scratch you have to really you have to it's a pain, painful process and yeah I, of course and actually this is kind of a what i wanted to wrap it up with a, a question and and this i don't mean to be hard on the protesters or or anything like that actually I'm, I'm looking at it in the other way the fact that there is no one coming to the rescue of these protesters and they're in a way their legitimate concerns are shared they're universal and we hope to we hope that the coronavirus doesn't sort of curtail or or end that. We assume it it won't. But looking at it sort of uh, as a population that's left to it left to its own, and they're fighting from within, and these are domestic mm -hmm. concerns. Is there something positive there that you're really you're on your own? And if you do it, great, because you'll get there on your own. If you don't get there on your own, you'll have to try again. Right. So in, uh, is that in a way a, 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 a hopeful way of looking at what are domestic concerns for the moment? That you don't, you don't necessarily need the external support, don't count on it, do the dirty work, get there on your own. And one day you might actually get there. I think it is more genuine and long-lasting mm. uh, if, if you get there on your own, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, when you have like a very organic movement that, mm -hmm. um, that takes the time to build and plan and strategize um, and to do it without outside help or an outside push, 
you know, of course that it's, it's more, it's more legitimate. It's more Mm -hmm. tangible. It's more, you know, you take a lot of pride in it. You, it's, it's something, um, but you know, again, I just feel like at the end of the day, Ronnie, you have the middle East, you know, it's a tra it's, 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 it's almost tragic. I mean, it's just, it's, it's a, a bunch of countries that are just kind of stuck where, you know, outside interests are never going to disappear when, when it comes to, and I don't know if I'm putting this in the right way, um, but, you know, you have, you have issues like terrorism, you have issues like maritime security, you Mm -hmm. know, the free flow of oil, um, the protection of Israel. I mean, you have all of these issues that just, you know, time and time again, surpass and it should be many also, of these it, issues that we're talking about yes. so at the end of the day yep. you know would things be very different if you know the middle east wasn't the the focal point of a lot of these issues that are um considered to be national security interests of right. the great powers would yes. they have been able to do things more on their own would they have been able to have a bit more breathing space. Um, I mean, I grew up in Egypt, you know, one of the things that I always tell my friends in the US, and I would even say this to my colleagues at the Pentagon, you don't know what it feels like to not be in control of your own destiny. Mm. You don't know what it feels like. I mean, Lebanon knows more than anybody almost what this feels like, you know, when you have outside powers interfering in your affairs, Mm. when you wake up and you just don't know what's going to happen because some other country is going to make a decision about what's going to happen to you, when you're going to wake up one day and you're going to see foreign tanks rolling down your streets that you didn't invite into your country. I mean, you know, the like Americans have no idea what that feels like. And when I try to kind of explain it to them in these very stark terms, what would you do, you know, my American colleague, if China suddenly sent tanks over and said, we're taking over, you know, Washington, D.C.? And you would pick up arms, too. You would do, you know, I mean, it's America's a revolutionary country. So, again, this all comes back to humanization and communication and just seeing each other as not just people who are fighting for the same values, but people who also have the same fears, the same traumas and the same natural human instinct for self-protection and for the protection of our loved ones. Yeah, absolutely. And it should also be added, even if America seems to be disinterested at the moment, there are countries that are heavily involved and uh, we sort of left it out of the conversation, but clearly Iran, Russia, different degrees, different countries are also involved, Saudi Arabia to a degree as well, that there is, there are are geopolitical uh, um, stories here that are kind of, they're being being challenged all the time, even if America is not sort of there, other countries are there too, which makes the aspirations all the topic of your next podcast. Well, it's been the topic of the last (laughs) 30 or so, but in different degrees. (laughs) <laughs> it always comes up, but it's it's all it's obvious that geopolitics are there with or without America. Right. You did. I I, I listened to Faisal Aitani's one, and there right. was a lot about that. Yes, exactly. And I mean, it should be said also that these are not sort of just democratic aspirations out of nowhere, and it's mm-hmm. just a question of why they can't get to the end. There are difficult, difficult issues that are 
they're they face sort of this generation, they face previous generations as well. Unfortunately, coronavirus has sort of robbed us of the of the momentum that we saw the last few months. And hopefully, hopefully, as this sort of diminishes, we'll see the aspirations continue in one form or another. Absolutely. And I and I just, you know, kind of just come back to the point that I made earlier, which is you know, if I were in these government's shoes, I would take this time to come up with a plan for the day after. Yes. Having recognized that you are not going to quash these people's hopes and dreams forever. It will keep coming up until you give them some semblance of dignity and hope. And and um, uh, and if you don't, it's going to keep coming up. So, you Absolutely. know, take this time to do something about it. You know, I want to say thank you for a few things. Number one, you're doing this at, I believe it's now one in the morning, Istanbul time. Yes. <laughs> so you're very kind with your time. You're very generous with your time. Number two, in the middle of coronavirus and all the concerns we have for loved ones, you took an hour of your time to do this as well. That's very important for me. And number three, which I think is the most flattering, even though this will be on audio, you did it video with me. So we were stuck with each other. <laughs> <laughs> and that is a very important thing during social distancing. We, actually, uh, you know, a, we looked at each other for an hour as well, which makes it even more rewarding. So we have I, to take human contact where we can get it nowadays. So absolutely. I was more than happy to do it on video. <laughs> absolutely. Well said. So Jasmine, thank you thank so you. much, Ronnie. Thanks for listening. And a friendly reminder to help support this podcast by contributing through Patreon or PayPal. All links are in the details box below. Until next time, I'm Rani Shatah, and this is the Beirut Banyan. <laughs>